And uh, there's a lot we have in common. There's a lot that's really very, very different. And I'm trying to hold them together. I'd like you to meditate while you listen. Keep your attention focused calmly on the breath as it goes in, as it goes out, as it's shallow, as it's deep, whatever way it's going to breathe, let the body breathe. And just keep your attention there. As for the sound of the talk, you don't need to pay too much attention to that. Simply let the sound pass you by. If there's anything really worthy of your attention in the talk, anything that will strike you, it'll come in and appear in, the mind, in your own mind on its own. The whole purpose of talking while people meditate is to help them get their minds centered. So your primary duty is to stay with the breath. This afternoon we had our first group session with Ajahn Suwat. <coughs> and it's a shame that it ended when it did. Everyone had to go to tea. <coughs> Just as Ajahn Suwat was getting into, it, into what he had to say. And after he left he had quite a lot to say. <clears throat> he said that he noticed from the questions that people had for him was that many people were suffering from doubts, anxieties about themselves, about their friends, about people they knew, about the practice. And he said it was largely because they were practicing the meditation out of context. He said they didn't have a sense of security or refuge in the practice, and that this was causing them a lot of problems. So tonight I'd like to share a few thoughts with you on the topic of what it means to take refuge in the practice. <clears throat> How it's done and what its benefits are. Buddhism, they talk about taking refuge in the Triple Gem, the Buddha, his teachings, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or the community of people who've practiced those teachings till they've gained true results. <coughs> now this act of taking refuge can be interpreted on a number of levels. But on the most important level, 
I want to talk about these three topics in the way in which I personally have found to be most helpful in practicing. First, taking refuge in the Buddha. What this means basically is taking refuge in his qualities as a person. And the quality that has always impressed me most was his complete and total, well, complete and total, <laughs> his radical honesty. Let's put it in those terms. He's completely honest with himself. You look at his life and he had everything that people would conventionally want to have. A beautiful wife, a child, wealth, position. <clears throat> and, and yet he looked around him and he saw that this wasn't enough. This wasn't true happiness. We often hear that Buddhism teaches us to lower our expectations because the world is an unhappy place, it doesn't have much to offer, so if we have high expectations, we'll make ourselves miserable. But actually, when you look at the Buddha's life, he had very high expectations for his own happiness. He saw that the finest things the world had to offer were not enough, and so he wanted more. He wanted to find something better. He saw that everything the world had to offer was still subject to aging, illness, and death. And so we wanted to find if there was a happiness that could go beyond these things. So first off, he was utterly honest about his demands. And secondly, he was utterly honest about how to get them. He realized that by living in a very comfortable life that way, he wouldn't have a com the chance to see deeply enough into the mind to find out what true happiness would be. And so he had to buck the conventions of society in that time. In those days, it wasn't common practice for respectable people to go out and live the life of a recluse in the forest. Your duty as a son was to get a wife, raise children, to carry on the family line. And yet he realized that, <clears throat> and many, many people content themselves with the kind of expectations of society. They're happy to limit themselves. They don't want to press themselves too hard. And society says this is all you really need to expect out of life, and you sort of fall back on those limitations. But he decided he wouldn't fall back on those limitations. He'd go against the, the rules of society, the conventions that people around him all believed in, because he felt there was something much more important, something much more valid something much more valuable in his life. And so he tried everything that was open to the life of a recluse in those days. And it was only after searching for many, many teachers that he realized that their teachings had nothing to offer him, so he had to go out on his own. And at this point, it was his, his radical honesty that was the only thing he had to fall back on. If he was going to find the truth, it was because he could honestly search for it and honestly see it. So I, in my own practice, have found that it's very useful to reflect on this one virtue of the Buddha and try to create it in my own life. Many of us find that in becoming meditators, we're going against values that our parents have ingrained in us. The idea that your first responsibility is to help other people as much as possible. And if you try to go off on your own and find peace of mind on your own, you're being selfish. 
we have to look through that teaching, look through that value to see how true it really is. And there are many, many other values that we find not only in American society, but in any society, which go against what is really good for the mind, what is really good for the heart. And no matter what society you're in, whether you're born in a Buddhist country, like Thailand or Burma, or whether you're born in America, you have to, if you really are serious about practicing the teachings, you have to go against a lot of society's conventions. Not only external conventions, but the things they teach you to think, and they teach you to believe. So many times when you're meditating, you come across one of these conventions saying, what are you doing here? Are you being selfish? Is there any worth, anything worthwhile in this? You have to question that convention. Where does it come from? Question that thought. Simply because we've been brought up to believe something doesn't mean it's true. Of course, we all consciously realize this. <clears throat> but many times on an unconscious or subconscious level, it doesn't really penetrate. So this is one thought about taking refuge. It was that the Buddha found truth. He found true happiness by being totally honest. And then if we want to find the same truth, we have to be honest with ourselves. This is both a challenge and a reassurance. One, the challenge to be honest in ways that we're not, perhaps may not be used to be being honest with ourselves. But also a reassurance that this one value within ourselves, this one quality, which is something very secure, it may be scary when you start out, but it's very secure. It's a value that you can be comfortable with. You don't have to feel that you're selling out or limiting yourself. <clears throat> and it's reassuring to know that by following this value, true happiness can be attained. So this is one point in taking refuge in the Buddha. It means taking refuge in your own honesty and trusting it. The second point is to take refuge in the Dhamma, and this means to take refuge in the practice. Many people are attracted to Buddhism because they, they, they see that the Buddha never required people to believe in what he said. It's not a religion based on faith. But that doesn't mean that it's a religion where you can pick and choose as you like. <clears throat> what it means is that the Buddha challenges each of, each of us. He says the path to happiness has three basic parts. Virtue, concentration, and discernment. He 
and he challenges you to test it. Now if you test it by taking only one part of the path, it's like testing a cake recipe by omitting the flour and the butter and using only eggs. Or building a house out of doorknobs and shingles. Many people start meditating and they find that after a retreat that they really haven't gotten that much happier in their lives. And they say that there must be something wrong with the practice. It's like following a cake recipe and saying, well, I don't like flour, so I won't put flour in the cake. And I don't like butter because it's fattening, so I'll just use the eggs. And then when you cook the eggs and they come out and they don't taste like a cake, you blame the recipe. <clears throat> so as John Sawat said this afternoon, when the, the Buddha challenges you with his teachings, and he says, give it a try. And we all know what it's like to try a style of life which doesn't fall in with the Buddhist teachings. We've all tried that one before, in one way or another. And we've all seen where it leads us. It leads us to places like the in Insight Meditation Society. <laughs> to try to find a way out. So what the Buddha is basically saying is, give it a try. In the beginning, he says there are only two things that you have to have trust in. And one is the fact that the Buddha was enlightened, and two, you have to have trust in the principle of karma. <coughs> that when you do good, you receive good in return. And when you do evil, you receive evil in return. course of your life depends on your actions. Your actions both in terms of your physical deeds, the words you say, and the thoughts that you think. <coughs> now there's one side of the principle of karma that's rather scary. And that's you don't know what you did in the past. And some people are afraid that if they believe in the principle of karma, they'll be opening themselves up to all sorts of bad things that they may have done in the past. Whether you believe in it or not, you're already open. So what it really teaches is the most important thing is to focus on your own actions right now, in the present. What's past is past, nothing can be done, for it, done about it. But the present is full of opportunities. All kinds of things offer, offer, offer themselves for us to do to say and to think. And we have the choice to guide our own future by what we select to do now. The reassuring part about the principle is that if you choose to do good, then evil can't happen to you. Again, what's past is past, and you may have done bad things in the past, but there's nothing you can do to correct those, so you don't worry about it. This is another part of the principle of karma, is you learn to use your thinking advantageously. Most of us with our minds are like babies with grenades. <coughs> we have something very powerful, but it can do an awful lot of harm. 
so you should try to think of your thinking as a tool. It's something that can build your future, simply the way you think, the things you choose to preoccupy yourself with. When you have a thought, look at the effect that it has on your mind. You can tell immediately. You don't have to wait until the next lifetime. If a thought is good, it will leave the mind peaceful. If there's something unproductive or unwholesome or unbeneficial about the thought, it'll disturb the mind. You can see this happening in the present. <coughs> and so when you find yourself thinking negative things, as John Sowat said this afternoon, and this is for the benefit of those who aren't there, <coughs> ask yourself, with all my education and all the things I've learned and all the intelligence I say that I have, I let myself harm myself like this. And so what can I call myself but stupid? He says, don't call, go calling other people stupid. You can call yourself stupid. You can call yourself anything you like. <clears throat> as long as you have the right attitude towards yourself. Since I am educated, and I have... <coughs> a certain amount of intelligence, you can tell yourself, why can't I think about good things? There are all kinds of things in the world that are good to think about. And if the mind is busy thinking about good things, it can't think about bad things. It's the same as when it's busy doing good things, it can't do bad things. The body can't do bad things. So we take refuge in the principle of karma. That we are the ones who will determine the course of our lives by choosing what we will do, what we will say, and what we will think. Now in choosing these things, the Buddha offers guidelines. The first are the precepts. <coughs> One of Ajahn Sawat's comments after you all left is he said, many people meditate like people building a house without having laid the foundation. You decorate the eaves, you decorate the windows, you paint the house, it all looks very nice. But it doesn't have any foundation. As soon as a heavy wind comes along, it all blows away. And then you wonder about, why is it that I go on retreats and I can't take the retreat attitude back with me into life? The reason the Buddha taught the five precepts is not that he was trying to be like a school mom, keeping little kids in line. But simply he noticed that in his own life, in the practice that he had followed, he followed these principles and found that they led to peace of mind. You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't have illicit sex, you don't lie, you don't take intoxicants. He found that he himself had found peace of mind on the preliminary level by following these actions. And so he recommended them to other people. You have to remember, and this is another one of Ajahn Sawat's comments this evening, was that the Buddha didn't just teach people to go to Nirvana. He taught them how to live their lives in everyday situations. He taught husbands how to get along with their wives. He taught wives how to get along with their husbands. He taught children and parents how to get along with each other. <clears throat> he taught businessmen how to make an honest fortune. He taught people on all kinds of levels. In each case, it was because he had observed what 
principles had worked in his own life for leading the peace of mind. And so if you don't yet know the Buddha's teachings on these topics, the precepts, a husband's duties to his wife, a wife's duties to her husband, parents' duties to their children, and vice versa. Or how to make an honest fortune. That's what you're interested in. After you leave the retreat, I suggest that you find books on these topics and read up on them. And honestly look at your own life and see the ways that the principles can be applied. So that the techniques you learn here in the retreat will have a basis. They won't be just floating in the air as you drive out the driveway from IMS. <clears throat> and in the course of putting these principles into practice, you begin to see a certain sense of contentment and ease and serenity coming in your own life. Coming from the self-respect that you can have, that you're leading a life which is principled which is doing harm to no one, not to anyone else, and not to yourself. And it's seeing the results that come on this level of the practice that give you more conviction that what the Buddha was teaching must have something to it. So that when you go on to the practice of meditation and try to calm the mind, and then use the calm mind to gain discernment, you have a sense of security a sense of trust, that even though the going may be rough at first, it must be worth it in the end. And so this is what it means to take refuge in the Dharma. If you have confidence in the principle of karma, And then you look at what you're doing in the present, keeping your mind with a breath, you're not harming anyone, you're not harming yourself. It may be a little hard on your knees and on your back, but these are things that can be adjusted to. feel like their legs are going to fall off while they meditate, but I have yet to see it happen. <clears throat> so you can be confident about that. You won't be leaving your legs here at IMS when you go. If you do, you'll be able to go on a speaking tour when you leave. <laughs> so you don't lose either way. <laughs> So these are a few reflections on what it means to take refuge in the Dharma. I trust that when you're doing good, you're not harming yourself, you're not harming anyone. You're creating hope for your own future, a hope for inner peace and happiness. That when you practice the Dharma, when you practice the Dharma on all of its levels, the practice of virtue, the practice of concentration. Or again, when you get into the processes of insight, 
Many people are afraid to leave their concentration. They like the peace and serenity and security. And they're afraid to go out investigating things because they're, they become so addicted to the peace that comes from being still that they don't want to disturb it by investigating deep inside themselves, and deep, in, deep into the things around them. But again, the Buddha said, it's only through this sort of investigation that true, unconditioned happiness can be found. So in treading the path, we've learned to trust him. And so we tread it, and we, so we follow it further. And we find that this inner sense of respect, of calm, serenity within us grows. And it grows in a way that's stable and secure. Taking refuge in the Sangha means taking refuge in the example of others who have followed the path. Men, women, and children have all followed the path and found true happiness at the end. It just wasn't something, it wasn't just something that the Buddha made up. There are other people to act as witnesses. They too follow the path, and when they reach the end, they say there's nothing wrong with what the Buddha taught. Every word, every teaching in the Dharma is true. In Thai, they call it satchatam, the honest truth. <clears throat> the Buddha wasn't lying to anyone, to put it, to put it bluntly. And yet those who follow the path have all gone through the same difficulties we've had to encounter. They'd sit and meditate and their knees would ache. They'd think about people at home. They think about the relationships that were going well and weren't going well. All these other things that we're dealing with, they dealt with too. And yet they found the resources within themselves to go beyond these things. And it's not that they were superhuman beings. Many times reading the stories of the Arahants, reading the stories of the Buddha, <coughs> authors tend to glorify them all out of proportion. But in every case, they were all ordinary human beings like us. And yet they found the resources within themselves to go beyond these obstacles. And so this should give us confidence that we too can go beyond them. In another sense, taking refuge in the Sangha means looking for people who have tread the path to learn from their example and to gain energy from being around them. Seeing that they were able to tread the path it gives us confidence and conviction that we too can tread it as well. And we see the happiness and the calm that they have. And it convinces us that this must be something good. I remember when I first read about arahants and monks who practice in the forest, I thought it must be an awful dry life. But then I went to Thailand and met, met monks who had been practicing, had given their lives to the practice. And they were very alive people. Very kind, very wise. Very personable. 
for some reason what seemed very important to me was also that they had a very good sense of humor. And humor can come only from a person who is confident. The type of humor that can only come from confidence and security. So what I've been saying tonight is hopefully to give you some sense of the context in which this practice falls. And perhaps it can help you develop some of the attitudes you need to get you past the pains in your knees and the thoughts about this, that, and your doubts about this, that, and the other thing. One of the questions today that, I, that seemed to hit most everyone close to home was one in which someone was saying, looking at all the dangers that we've created for ourselves in this world, how can we practice? How can you be serene? We've got ozone holes and we've got all kinds of things floating up in the air. Radioactive waste that we don't know where to throw away. And with these dangers all around us, how can we practice? And then John Sweat's answer was, he had several answers. But one point that struck me the most was that even before these dangers existed, people still died. It's not that death is something that's only been created with modern technology. There's a famous discourse of the Buddha, where the Buddha asked King Basenadi, I think it was, suppose there was a messenger to come from the east, and to say that there was a huge mountain coming in from the east, crushing all before it, and that there was no escaping it. And another messenger were to come from the west and say that there was a huge mountain coming in from the west, crushing all before it, and there was no escaping it. And there were messengers coming from the north and the south, saying that there were huge mountains coming down from the north and coming up from the south, crushing all on their way. And reflecting on the fact that a human life is something hard to come by, what would you do? And King Basenadi thought for a minute and said, Well, in that case, I try to keep my mind calm and do whatever good I could before the mountains came. And so the Buddha said, Death is coming crushing all before it, and there's no escaping it. So what will you do? And King Basenity said, well, I'll keep my mind calm and do whatever good I can. And then Buddha approved of his answer. So no matter what the dangers there are around us, even the dangers are uncertain. What is certain is that we're here right now. We have a chance to make our minds calm and to do what good we can with them. So rather than deal in uncertainties, why don't we focus on what's certain right now? The opportunity is here. So let's make the best of it.
John Swett's concluding words this evening, for the sake of those of you who weren't there. was that he asked that you not overlook the happiness and pleasure and ease that comes from living together the way we're living right now. None of us is harming another person. We're not, you know, we're not verbally abusing one another. We're here practicing the Dhamma together. And we've come from all directions, from many different countries, many different backgrounds, and yet we're able to live together as one family. In fact, better than a family. And he says, if you overlook this kind of happiness, or the good that comes from this kind of life, then you're sure to overlook all the happiness and good that can come from the practice. So reflect on this. Many times, real happiness, it's something that's inside us, and yet we overlook it. And it's little things that create it, little things that destroy it. And yet the way to maintain that happiness has been taught to us. Basically, if we don't do the things that destroy it, it'll be there. It needs to be actively destroyed. If we're not actively destroying it, there it is. I'll leave you, leave you with one concluding remark, comment he made towards the end of the evening. Was that happiness isn't something that's out there in bits and pieces or hunks. It's inside each of us. An earlier image he made was that looking for calm in your mind is like looking at your reflection in the water. If there are waves in the water and you don't see your reflection, so you stir the water around to see where it might be inside there. Um, <laughs> I don't have to conclude that image, you know what he's saying. But to return to the other image, if happiness were bits and pieces and hunks or things that we could find outside ourselves, we'd be miserable having to look for them. And even if we got them, people would probably try to cheat us out of them, take them away. But it's something that can be naturally within each of us. It's there if we only let the water be still. There it will be. that. We have a few more minutes in this session, so I ask that you sit quietly until the gong.
walk or sit now. It's a walking period if you recall. Uh, people in Tom Jeff's group can meet in the library. Anyone in Tom Jeff's interview group that would be meeting now in the library? Thank <laughs> you. 